You're listening to episode six of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Anomalisa comes from the unique mind of Charlie Kaufman and tells the story of Michael Stone, a customer service expert and motivational speaker. He's come to Cincinnati, Ohio to promote his new book and spends a night at the opulent Frejoli Hotel. Despite his success, Michael feels distant from all those around him and his world is populated entirely by a cast of characters, all of whom have the exact same face and voice. Deeply unhappy and dissatisfied, he has a chance encounter with a woman whose unique appearance and voice instantly captivates him and is the one thing that might prevent him from continuing his downward spiral into insanity. Charlie Kaufman's one of them very interested in writers, directors, whose vision is singular, isn't it? I'd say he's one of those, kind of like a David Lynch, one of those like once-in-a-generation talents. It doesn't matter if he has wrote it or wrote, written and directed it. It has his flavour throughout everything. For me, the most interesting thing about him is not necessarily the way the films are made, yet they are made in a very unique way. It's the concept. It's like when you hear a plot synopsis. You, know, you ever hear a plot synopsis for a film and like, right, that's me sold. For me, that's what it's like with a Charlie Kaufman film. It's really the plot, the concept that sells me on it. All his films are ideas-based because there's several themes what you could say run through a Charlie Kaufman film, for me anyway. Everybody's having an existential crisis. Everything is filtered through the subjectivity, isn't it? From a specific person, how they see the world. Yeah, and very much uh, with the protagonist as well. It's very much a frustrated, downtrodden protagonist who, I guess, kind of grows or learns something. Not necessarily, but that's usually kind of how it goes. It's a really interesting start to his career because saying all that, he he actually got his start right in spec articles for National Lampoon magazine. Good start. The magazine that brought us John Hughes, mm-hmm. Animal House, yes. all these films you wouldn't necessarily associate with a Kaufman. No, because John Hughes generally made like much more grounded films. There was a bit of weirdness in them, but generally they were a lot more grounded than a Kaufman film is anyway. Well, I've never read his articles, but I hear they're highly satirical. They probably would be, yeah. I think he's, he's always spoke about his love of satire. Would you say he's one of the preeminent modern satirists? Yes, I, I definitely would say that. You just need to look at his films and the way, the kind of odd sideways way that he tackles a lot of his themes. It's clear that that's what he's going for. And writing for the Dana Carvey sketch show. Yeah, again, if, if you told me that, I'd have thought... No, that I just did tell be. you that way, <laughs> and I still don't believe I said it. No, it's 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 really interesting. It's like hearing that you know Michael Keaton, who played Batman, he got started on the Mister the Fred Rogers show. One of those great little tidbits, though. But um, interesting start, and it's not didn't really suggest where he would go later on in his career. No, because his first written script or the first published script, being John Malkovich, is nothing like them. No, it's. Being John Malkovich, it's, I'll admit, it's been quite a few years since yeah. I've seen it. Uh, there's bits and pieces I can remember. I can remember it's the usual kind of um, blend of comedy and drama with usually the comedy just bursting out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. If When you watch it, it's very much a Kaufman film. But yeah, it doesn't really, his early work didn't really suggest he would make something like that. And it's very serendipitous how that film even got made because that script it was rejected by studio after studio. And it found its way into the hands of Francis Ford Coppola. The legend. The legend, who, luckily, Mm -hmm. 
son-in-law was Spike Jones. Spike Jones. I was thought it was Spike Jonesy. Spike Jones, isn't it? It's Spike Jones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it made its way into his hands, and he would go on to direct not just uh, being John Malkovich, but adaptation as well. Adaptation. So it was a fruitful collaboration, wasn't it? It very much was. But um, what is your thoughts on his films in general? It's funny. They, they're so intellectual, yet they can so easily meander into silliness, do you not think? They it's like do. this juxtaposition between silly and intellectual. Yeah, if you were asked my opinion on Kaufman, I would say the best way I can sum it up is I have something of a love-hate relationship with his films. There's very few of them I've watched and kind of went, uh, meh. It's generally, that was really good or... Oh, I didn't like that at all. Do you have all. a specific one you weren't so keen on? Or? A few, actually. First one, funny enough, was being John Malkovich. Was it? But maybe because I've not seen it in quite a while, I think maybe I need to revisit it. But did you ever see Synecdoche, New York? I did, yeah, I with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, but that film, I just did not get into that film at all. I found the lead way too, like, way too maybe depressive and boring and... I think it was just way too grandiose. Roger Ebert actually named it the best film of the noughties. Really? But, yeah, but I just I just couldn't get into it at all. And then his most recent film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I really liked the I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I don't understand what the hell it's saying. No. I liked the ride. I liked figuring it out. I came up with an interpretation that I can't remember now. <laughs> and then realised I was very wrong. I don't think I even interpreted it. What it felt like to me, as I said this at the time, is... A lot of it, because it's mostly Jesse Plemons. Like, is it Jesse Buckley? Jesse Buckley. Jesse yeah. Buckley, yeah. They're driving in a car to see Jesse Plemons' parents. Yep, at a farmhouse. Yeah, and they're having these long conversations in the car. And a lot of it, for me, felt like two philosophy students trying to outsmart each other. Yeah, the beginning scene, is it not like a 20-minute car ride almost? Pretty much. Through a snow snowstorm. Almost entirely filmed like there's a GoPro camera just outside the window. So, do you see... This is what I'm always interested in, because... There's obviously Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. Love that film. Uh, great film. Adaptation. And obviously these are films written by Kaufman, but not directed by him. And the interesting thing about Kaufman is whether he is just a writer or if he's the writer-director, his vision trumps the director in the films he's not... Yeah, I can see that. It's more like he's he's much better at writing the script rather than it is bringing the script to the do you big screen. Do you feel that? I feel like he almost, like with Synecdoche, like he almost tries to go too grandiose. Do you think his films that are directed by an outside party, that it, it, they make it more palatable? I think it's more that they kind of rein his vision yeah. in. Like with when he's written and directed a script, he just lets himself go. But I think it's better when it's reined in because I love adaptation. I love Eternal Sunshine. That's maybe my favourite of, uh, of his films. Those are the films of his I'd say I love the most. What I really appreciate with Kaufman, and one of my highlights of his work is, you know, the term personal pictures. Yes. He's making personal pictures, yet he's hiding it in a surrealist approach. Because there's neorealists like, you know, your Rossellinis in Italy, or even up to this current day with Belfast with Kenneth Branagh, who it's a very matter-of-fact existence, it's very literal. But Kaufman is speaking to those thoughts and to those feelings, but he's hiding it in so much imagery, isn't he? It's almost like a simple message in a very elaborate packaging, Yeah, if you can say that. Another thing with Kaufman is, this is someone he's admitted he had a problem with. He actually said... I don't know what the hell a third act is. <laughs> and for me, that plays into quite a few films because movies like, I felt, I like adaptation, but it feels like it kind of falls apart in the third act. 
kind of a similar thing with like Eternal Sunshine kind of goes funny at the end. So does Synecdoche, New York. It's like he has trouble, like he has a great build-up, but he has like trouble sticking the landing. One of the slight criticisms for this film, do you find he finds a theme and just hammers that single theme? Yeah, um, for this film, uh, Anomalisa, yeah. um, the third act for me was my least favourite part of the film. And that's why when I read this quote, it suddenly clicked with me. Yeah, that's a really good point he's got there. They could almost exist as one-act plays, couldn't they? Yes. You could get the interpretation, the theme of the film. You could condense that into something. And actually, I think that's one of the strong points of this film, is it's only about, what, one hour 20? It's actually about maybe one... It's marked as like one hour 30, but about seven minutes is credits. And I think that short time span, especially for this, works. Yeah. It's succinct enough that you don't get sick of it. Mm-hmm. Because it's very singular in vision, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's it's it tell it delivers its message not so much that it feels like you're properly being pounded over the head by it. Several things for all of these films. Memories is another big one, an yes. identity. These themes of memories and identity, and they go through this film especially. Yeah, identity plays very much a big part in this one. Do you think identity changes though? Because interestingly this film's actually co-directed by duke johnson it is yeah it's got a, got a co-director which i guess does lend an interesting sort of dynamic to the film well that's mainly i think it's it's the animation aspect isn't it the stop motion because these are puppets they decided to do with puppets which was a risky move because it's stop motion animation which looks gorgeous but it's very laborious very time consuming it can take years to bring a stop motion animation film to life oh, duke johnson's done a terrific job because this looks absolutely stunning the puppetry i loved it one thing i love about it is using stop motion everything on the screen is there you can see a beautifully animated film like inside out or which kaufman and duke johnson hated yes oh really yeah oh dear dear. uh coco is another one so it looks gorgeous but you're fully aware that stuff is not really there but with puppets like you could reach out and touch what's on the screen and i think it's so unusual seeing puppets in an adult setting isn't it or catered to adults i should say yeah it's because you think, well, you always think of it as like a, a kind of a child's medium. It's like, you know, when they did Sausage Party, it's an animated film, but it's appealing entirely to yeah. adults. Well, when you think puppets, I always think like Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet. Of, Captain Scarlet, things of that ilk. And then you've got Team America. I don't know, almost like this is, film is like a weird counterpoint to Team actually, America. They, Team America actually, t- there's a fact of Team America that actually ties into this film. Yes, I think I know what that's going to be, but we'll get yeah. to that later on. So, yeah, this film was originally a stage play, wasn't it? An audio play, yes. For the 2005 early run of Theatre of the New E. I would actually, having watched the film, I'd like to go and actually see that that play. That would be really interesting, I think. Well, this film stars Jennifer Jason Leigh, David Thewlis, mm-hmm. and Tom Noonan. And Tom Noonan. And that's the only three actors in the film. It is. When you go on the, I love this, when you go on the Wikipedia page, it says David Thewlis as his character name, yeah. Jennifer Jason Leigh as her character name, Tom Noonan as, quote, everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I love that as well. That would sell me on a film straight away I hope as Tom well. got paid more. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. I think, like, you know, when Polo Express, Tom Hanks all did all the characters, I'm like, I hope he got paid more. When they done this on stage, they would have Jennifer Jason Leigh on one side, David Thewlis on one side, and Tom Noonan in the middle. Yeah. And that, it was just a, that simple setup, wasn't Incredibly it? minimalist, yeah. That would be an experience. It would. In fact, that minimalism is part of the reason Kaufman didn't actually want to make this into a film, because he said the play had a disconnect between what's being said on stage and what the audience is seeing. There's Tom playing all these characters, there's Jennifer and David. So that was the whole minimalist appearance on stage. So making it into a film, I think, could have been a very risky move. 
Which is why they actually went to Kickstarter to fund this, didn't they? They did. They got four hundred, roughly four hundred and six thousand dollars from a Kickstarter and five thousand seven hundred and seventy backers who pledged that money. Yeah, and that wasn't that still wasn't enough because of unforeseen expenses and because of the yeah. the working with the puppets. So, a production one of the production companies, Starburns Industries, provided the additional funding to bring the film to life because they were originally planning just a forty minute short film, weren't they? Yeah, and then but because that company, Starburns Industries, got involved. They could expand that into a feature film. They did, and it took more than two years to two produce. Years. Give you an idea how long. I remember watching a documentary on stop motion. It was plasticine puppets like Wallace and Gromit, and you had this plasticine puppet, and it said, "Hello, I'm a goblin." That took three hours to get them to do three that. Hours. So imagine trying to bring this, which is a hour and twenty-five odd minute film, to the big screen. How long it would have taken? They went the right route, though, because. The, the genesis for them going to Kickstarter was so that the integrity of the play could remain intact on in the film, wasn't it? Rather than being compromised by studio interference. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. They thought with the studio interference, it would become a film that they never intended. They would have messed it up. You know what studios are like for bad interference in films? With this film, as opposed to a lot of other animated films, the actors... They actually recorded their lines together in the studio. Because usually they do it separately, don't they? And the the animation came afterward. Yeah, you get all the, you lay all the voices down, then you do the animation on top. I think it was a good idea to have them in the same room, actually. I, I think it probably made it easier, more of a flow to the conversation. And do, and do you know how long the stop motion actually took to film? A long goddamn time. Two years. Yeah, two years. And here's, here's a fact. Do you know how much footage they filmed in one week? Usable footage for the film in one week. Well, like, like what duration? Yeah. I'm going to guess in a week, like five minutes? One minute. A minute. Per week, it was one minute of usable footage. Yeah, you would have had to be really dedicated to carry on with that. Imagine working for a week and you've got a minute of a feature film. Something else I like about it as well is, the. do you know um, when uh, it was written in 2005, it was originally written under a, a pseudonym. Do you know what the pseudonym was? I do. You tell me, Wayne. It's Francis Frejoli. It's a bit on the nose, isn't it? A little bit, but it's a fact you appreciate more once you've actually seen the film. And when we get into the story, I think you'll understand why that's a bit on the nose. Yes, you'll you'll notice why it's very, very literal. And I like how this film actually starts as a a homage to their stage play, doesn't it? Yeah. Because it starts just a black screen for several minutes, would you say? About a minute and a half. A minute and a half. And that was a purpose artistic choice to pay respect to the stage play this came from. Because if you went to see the stage play, this is exactly what you would have got when you went to see it. And you get that indistinct kind of chatter, isn't it, over the black? There's just it's chattering. It's blabbing and blabbing. It's, it's like being stuck in like a crowded a crowded lift or a crowded building. It's just yak, 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 yak. And it's completely indistinct. You could say that ties in with a character's psychology, could you, Wayne? Straight away, you get into the character's psychology. Yeah, because it, like a lot of these films we talk about, this film sets the tone from the start. Mm, yeah, very much. It's like when like when we talked about censor, like within the first few seconds, it's already set the tone. It gives you an idea of what's to come. And we're talking about a black screen and people talking over it. Mm-hmm. But that's enough because you know with Kaufman, you're in the hands of somebody whose vision you're going to be taking on for the next hour and a half. Because you know the psychology that he's delving into because when the screen finally does illuminate, it's everything looks so strange. You're like up in the clouds, you can see all the mountains and then you can just see like a little plane flying by. And you do realise from there the magnificence of the stop motion, don't you? I thought it was absolutely gorgeous, this film. Just the beautifully vivid colours, the puppets as well looked fantastic. I thought this was, it was a visual feast, this film. So that's where we meet, when we enter the plane, Mm -hmm. Michael Stone. Michael Stone, he's just sat there 
Well, looking like most people do on flights, to be honest. Because he's popping pills on this plane, isn't he? He's like sat on the plane, taking his meds. Very melancholic music. Very kind of slow and soft and downbeat. Well, Michael's very melancholic, you could say. It is. It very much suits his tone. And then this is where we first notice one of the defining characteristics about this film. When you see on the plane, all of the puppets, except Michael have exactly the same face. Because what this film does is, it doesn't hide the puppetry. You can see the puppetry lines around their eyes, can't you? And it almost is like they're wearing a mask. Yeah. In fact, you know what I thought the first time I seen this film? I thought for most of the film, Michael had glasses on. Because it, it looks like the, the, the legs of his glasses and the sides of his face. I thought exactly the same thing. Yes. It looked like everybody was wearing glasses. It did. And I like that because you, you can see how they're moving. And you can see the lines down the sides of the face, like the hairline. And you can see it all kind of slowly shifting about which I, I thought was a great detail that's not accidental because we'll get to it later but that that ties into the theme of this film doesn't it that, yes. that, that's not an accident the artifice is to make a thematic point it is very much it's the mask the person is yeah is, is donning basically and he takes out this letter and you can see like this handwritten letter and he starts he doesn't start to read it to himself somebody else basically reads it for him yeah a woman called bella bella who pops up like kind of a ghostly figure and it's a very angry letter, like very profanity-laden letter. And she says, after all you said to me, after all we did, after all those fucking promises. And the fucking fucking. That fucking fucking, and the yeah. fucking That's important, the fucking fucking. So clearly, straight away, we know this is some kind of ex-jilted like jilted ex-relationship. But what you find out in this... But, well, it doesn't actually make it completely clear, but it's a male voice she's speaking through. It is a male voice. And you can kind of see, I guess, with... With the male and female characters, the women usually have long hair, so it's harder to see. But yeah, yeah it, when you have a closer look, yes, has the same face as well. Because we see the passengers, the, the indistinct chattering at the start. Mm -hmm. We're seeing, okay, people are actually talking alike now. Yeah, and it was only on the second watch of the film that I noticed all that indistinct voice at the very beginning. That was the same voice as well. I'd never noticed that the first time I watched because you wouldn't expect that kind of thing. And do you know what that is, Wayne? Mm -hmm. That's Tom Noonan as everybody else. Tom Noonan as everybody <laughs> yep. else. Yeah, it's great. I, full credit to Tom Noonan. How good a job he does having to voice all of these different characters. Tom Noonan, who was famously the first villain in a Hannibal Lecter film. <laughs> Michael Mann's Manhunter. Michael Mann's Manhunter. He was yes. Red Dragon. Yeah, uh, he was. I, I recognise him most, I think, from uh, Robocop 2. Does that sound kind of weird? <laughs> it's not as cool as Manhunter. Not as cool as Manhunter, no. But it was yeah, it was at this point I noticed I loved how expressive the puppets were because it's not like they've got like stilted faces. They do move around a lot, and there's a lot of expression in the eyes and the faces, partly because of how the faces are able to move. You say about the eyes, and that's a good point you make because when they were set designed in this film, they would have loads and loads and loads of mini bulbs around the set just to make the eyes more realistic because it shows the reflectiveness of the eyeball. Yeah, it was it was a very laborious process to get those expressions right, but I liked how they were going for that kind of authenticity with the puppets. So that letter never worked out that great, did it? No, 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 it didn't, it didn't work out It wasn't at all. a love letter, was it? No, it wasn't at all. And then he puts it away. Uh, they land at the airport, and then he has a weird conversation with a guy sitting next to him who keeps grabbing his hand nervously. That poor guy. He's yeah. so used to being, sitting with his wife, he grabs uh, Michael's hand. It's like a reflex. And Michael is... He speaks in kind of a very dismissive tone. It's like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's fine. It's like, you can let go now. It's like he just wants nothing to do with this guy. David Thewlis, who plays Michael, has got that, that perfectly droll Manchester drawl, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. The landing at the airport now, and he's moving through. Again, 
It's just a crowd of people all with this exact same creepy, almost blank face. It's very homogenized, isn't it? it Everybody's is. the same. Everybody speaks the same. Yeah, and he's just shuffling through, looking like, well, a kind of typical commuter, to be Puts honest. Puts his earbuds in to listen to who, Wayne? Lacme. Lacme, yeah. Lacme. And again, what I love is it's, it's, it's a song, and it's sung by Tom Noonan kind of sung almost deliberately off-key. It just sounds pretty horrible. Which I didn't really understand. He's the kind of gist that he's putting these earbuds in to block out all the mindless chatter with all the same voices, yet he's putting earbuds in to listen to the same voice. He's traded homogenous talking for homogenous singing, basically. Unless it's he's sing, it sounds more singular, so... Maybe, yeah, maybe he just like finds it easier to listen to it in that in that format, and, maybe. And I suppose he gets the music as well, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, I suppose, yeah, a little bit of music. But Lakme actually does come up a few more times he uh, does. throughout the film because he goes outside and he gets in a taxi. The taxi driver doesn't seem very happy to have a passenger, does he? He doesn't even seem like he wants to talk to him. Do you think they're going for that kind of stereotypical American, ah, get in, get out, yeah, get, in, get in, get out kind of thing? It does because it's like he almost has to almost negotiate to get him to go. It's like, the fr- I'm going to the, the Frejoli. The Frigoli? The, the, the Frigoli. He's like, yeah, okay. And so he gets in the taxi, and again, another taxi driver, same same face, same voice, and they go into town, and there's this weird conversation where the taxi driver is essentially plugging Cincinnati, because that's where Michael is now. He's trying to plug Cincinnati, and there's some strange misunderstandings, because obviously Michael Phillips is from the UK, and they talk about that, and it's just... Did you find that it was a funny conversation, that one they had? It was very... Yeah, when he was plugging it, because he's speaking up, Cincinnati's cinnamon and chocolate chili, isn't he? That chili sounded horrible. I don't know about you. And that comes up again, though, doesn't it? That's not a one-off remark. No, that's what I like. A lot of the things this taxi driver said, even little kind of throwaway lines, do yeah. come up later on when he's talking about. He talks about the zoo as well. Here's a. Did you notice this remark? Michael said, "I've never been here for a while," because he had been to Cincinnati, and now he says, "I've never been here for a while." And the taxi driver's reply to that is, it's changed a lot since you were last here. I love that because how long does he think it's been? He's just assuming how long it's been. How long? How does he know the duration of length between each visit? I don't know. I think he's just he's just very very assumptive in that way, isn't he? Just assumes that he knows how long he's been there. But he's he's very defensive about Cincinnati, clearly. Yeah, but we could also read into that. It could tie into things later where memory is being disjointed. Mm, where everything is getting all kind of mixed like up. Like this conversation is maybe not a literal conversation. No, like it's almost like imaginary. It's been kind of pieced yeah. together. One thing I did love about this conversation, because this reminded me of something that happened to me, is when he says he's from the UK. And he's like, oh, great. And he says all these English things. And he goes, oh, a shrimp on the barbie. Which, when I was in America, that happened to me. I, I, I was speaking to this waiter and he said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Scotland. And he went, oh, good day, mate. Like, he said that, really? He actually said that. I'm like, no, that's wrong country, dude. Why did they keep mixing the UK and Australia up? <laughs> different continent. <laughs> totally different continent, yeah. So yeah, he says shrimp of the barbie, and he drives into to the Frejoli Hotel. Are we going to keep saying Frejoli? I think Frejoli or Frigoli. Frigoli, Frejoli. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of them. Yeah, for those who didn't pick up on it, I didn't either. Frigoli or Frejoli is actually named after an actual... Delusion. Uh, an actual delusion where you believe, basically, everybody in the world is... Uh, one person and they're just playing all the different characters which plays into why michael is seeing everybody as the same and they've all got the same voice exactly i guess it, it made sense to call the hotel that kaufman was asked does michael suffer from the frigoli delusion and kaufman said no 
He said he used the Fregoli delusion as a starting point to the film, but he says Michael doesn't actually suffer from Fregoli. Which is strange because clearly he, as we see later on, clearly he is seeing all of these people as one person. That's why one of the reasons he's so fed up of everybody. And I'm going to get to that because I actually have a theory on this. Yeah. I'm not going to say it now. We'll we'll say it further on because, yeah, I'll get to it later. There's a point I'm going to make, so please don't let me forget that I point. I think I might know what you're on about. But yeah. Anyway, but he's at, the, no, he's at this Frigoli, uh, Frigoli bit. He goes up to the front desk. Which we should say has an amazing one-shot take. We go from the hallway of the Frigoli to his bedroom, to his hotel room, all in one shot. It's a beautiful one shot. Honestly, I, I honestly didn't actually notice that was one shot until it got to the hotel room. I'm like, oh, we still haven't cut yet. But uh, yeah, when he checks in... He does ask for a quiet room, doesn't he? Quiet room, yeah. Did you start to think, I don't know why, but when the um, the receptionist read his name back to him, Michael Stone, do you think he was almost given that name because it sounds like kind of a dull name? It's very generic. Yeah, it's like... And he's, and he's emotionally like a rock. It is, yeah. It's like Winston Smith from uh, 1984. It's like almost seems like a very deliberately dull name. Here's a strange thing. I actually never noticed that this, for 10, 15 minutes that everybody had the same face. I noticed they all had the same voice, but it actually took me a while to actually realize. I just thought it was the puppetry made them all look the same until I realized, I'm like, oh, damn, they actually do. They've all got the same face. Because this was the first time you've seen this. I'm trying to work out. I think it was maybe in the first time. Maybe it was on the plane or maybe a bit later, or maybe the airport when I was like, oh, yeah, everyone's got the same face. Yeah. Yeah, that struck me just like 15, 10 minutes into the film. I was like, oh, Christ. You'd think that's something that would. Um you think that's something you'd notice straight away, but it's weird how, again, with um, with the different clothes and different yeah. hair, how it kind of disguises that. As I said, we this one-shot take takes us from the hallway into the elevator. But he And here's a thing, and this plays into the psychology of Michael Stone again. The ele- the guy in the elevator who's take- taken him up to his room, he asks if he had a turbulent flight. Mm-hmm. Michael says, no, the, f- the flight was fine, doesn't he? Yes, it was a flight bumpy, he said no. Which is another point I've got about that. So yeah, this beautiful one-track shot goes from the hallway, elevator, into the room. Straight to him taking a piss in the toilet. (laughs) Yeah, that's when it cuts off. It was again here that I noticed just how beautiful the colours were. Also, somebody reminded me of, you know when he goes into the hotel, you've got the toilet on the left and then you've got the bedroom on the left-hand side. That reminded me so much because I like travelling, I like staying in hotels and it reminded me so many hotels have that exact same structure. So it made me like think of being like staying in hotels again in big cities what about the buttons on the phone though is that a thing where there's like each meal had or each meal represented a different button almost i've never seen that i've, no. seen, I've seen it where different buttons were like you press this yeah. for an alarm call you press this for room service yeah i've never seen it as the meal like represented each, a different course was almost a different no, button was I've it i've never seen that before you would never have like a phone big enough to have all of that on it and there was something uh that dawned on me when it got to this scene because we're about 15 20 minutes into yeah. this film at this point i thought to myself I can completely understand if someone didn't like this film. I could see if it wasn't to their taste, the pacing, whatever. But at this point, I was completely invested in this movie. I don't know why it just really, really spoke to me, like reached out and grabbed me at this point. It does emotionally resonate with you, doesn't it? It It, does. It's pacing, adds an authenticity to the character. What I felt is uh, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing, because we see him do a lot of stuff, a lot of not very interesting stuff. I liked how it was showing like the minutia of life, just all the little... Small details. All the small details, like, uh, did you see Lost in Translation? I love that for yeah. You. Another thing, uh, it kind of connects to that with someone pointed out with Lost in Translation. One thing it really highlights is how boring it is staying on your own in a fancy hotel room. Because that's what he kind of does, because he's 
just alone a lot of time in this hotel room and it just looks so soul crushingly boring well he's a traveler he's like a motivational speaker isn't he he is yeah and an author author motivational speaker yeah, well his, his books are about his mo- motivational speeches aren't yeah, they yeah because he's like a customer service expert and the reason he's in Cincinnati he's going to give a speech on customer service Sin Sin City as a taxi driver said Sin Sin City that's a great name by the way you kind of think of Las Vegas first, though, wouldn't you? If somebody said Sin Sin City to you? Maybe that's why I said Sin Sin, to yeah. distinguish, distinguish it from Sin City. Yeah, he phones his wife, doesn't he? That little shit of a kid, all he wants is a present, isn't it? That's the first thing he asks for. Does he not run down the steps? Have you got he's, me a present yet? you got me a present yet, Daddy? He's like, no, I have only bloody yet. arrived. Slugger, calls him Slugger. He's like, no, I haven't got your present yet, Slugger. But his wife says to him, how was the flight? Yeah. And what does he say, Wayne? He says, 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 oh, it was okay, it was a bit bumpy. A bit bumpy. I don't know about you, I burst out laughing at that point. I just love that contradiction between him telling the bellhop it was fine and then telling his wife it was bumpy. For me, maybe it's because with the bellhop, he was just so detached from that conversation. He was like on autopilot. But it just I just got a massive laugh out of me. That no, I, don't, I, I see it different from you. I see it more of a psychological assessment, which I'll mention later. But I don't think that's a throwaway comment. And it's, even though it's a little humorous, it's it's saying more than the humour. Very much like his conversation with the taxi driver where things kind of tie yeah. in later. Yeah. Yeah. And at this point, like he's having this phone call with his wife and the conversation looks soul destroying. It's like she's asking him questions he doesn't want her to ask. Like he just wants to check in with her and then put the phone down. I don't think there's much love in that marriage, is there? No, there's definitely not. Well, <laughs> no, definitely not. No. Again, it's long shots. He's walking about the hotel room and the camera's following him. And I like that, how it was showing all of like the, again, the minutiae, just the little details here and there. Because this film is about life. It's showing you the small details, what make up a minute, what make up a life. Mm. doesn't it it's it's not just to nasal gaze is it and say oh look at us we're just we're being still to be artsy it's an examination of life especially when for the filmmakers one minute was what a week's worth of work yes (laughs) yeah so uh yeah he has this conversation with his wife and then he does the thing where he opens the curtains looks out at the city again that that really, that really got to me because I used to love doing that. Well, I'd that go, happened to you. You know, I'd go into, <laughs> I'd go into a hotel, and I'd open the curtains and just look out over the cityscape. I used to, I'd loved, I loved doing that. I hope you didn't see what Michael saw. No, 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 no I didn't <laughs> see the same things there. Definitely. Not, what did no. Michael say? The guy with the hands down his trousers at the, the guy, at the computer. There's a guy just jerking off at the computer, wasn't he? Yeah. And it was again very melancholy music. And did you think the way that shot looked, him looking at the window? It felt like he was going to start narrating, like it was like a hard-boiled film noir story. It did have like a, a, a film noir look, doesn't it, sometimes? That cityscape and him against the curtain. Especially because he's smoking a cigarette. Because that leads on to him, his motivational speech, he's, and he starts speaking to himself. It's his motivation, like his, his uh, like customer service spiel that he's going to give to a convention, I'm guessing? For as great as people speak up Michael in this film, do you not find his motivational speech is a bit... He's speaking in platitudes a bit. It's kind of banal. Honestly, it sounds like the kind of speech that even a non-special in the area could have written. It does sound very, very generic. And he couldn't sound less interesting because he's practising it and he just keeps giving up, doesn't he? he just, it's like he can't be bothered. Well, he can't be bothered with life much, can he? He's so berated with this monotony of life because it's so homogenous because everybody's the same to him. Everything and everyone is just the same to him. It's like there's no variety or spice in his life. Even if you look at the way he dresses, he dresses like in a very bland manner. Because there's a scene next when he goes to get ice for the for his bucket, for mm-hmm. an ice bucket. And there's a couple arguing there. And 
even that this is what I was saying, this juxtaposition with Kaufman between the intellect and the silly, because the basis of their argument is pr- literally, fuck you, no, fuck you, yeah, fuck it's you, just fuck back you. And forward, yeah. But you see this a lot in the film, that the different genders just don't get on much, do they? No, there's a lot of this, this constant conflict between them, and I think, again, a lot of it stems from from Michael's own Michael's own past, his own insecurities. Yeah, he's a strange guy, because when he gets back to the hotel, that's when the image of Bella appears. Bella being the one who was reading the letter when he was in the plane, his his former flame. Because when she appears, it she almost looks like a ghost, like she's haunting him. Like she follows yeah. she follows him around as he walks around, she follows like her spectre follows him around the room and just berates him. Well she is. Her absence in his life is haunting him. In a figurative sense. It is. And like it, it got to parts of the film where I started to feel is a lot of what's happening in Michael's life a result of this because it was it was years ago. It was more than a decade ago, I think they say. Yeah, I, th- I think it was. I think it was eleven years since this well, had happened. Because he says ten years, and she corrects him and says no, eleven. Yeah, eleven. I suppose you, she goes eleven. Yeah, because he actually he actually calls Bella up. He finds her name. Well, before that, when the, he's reading the letter, because when her image appears and she's following around the room, that's because he's reading the letter, and we find out more about the relationship. Because she says in the letter, "What the fuck did I do, Michael? It's a mystery of the ages. One minute we were going to spend the rest of our lives together, then you left. Then you left. Which again, that suit that very much fits Michael's character." In the present. Because that's when he finds her in the directory, doesn't he? Yeah. And calls her up. And he calls her up and even the introduction, because he, he kind of rehearses it little, for a little bit. You know, like you do, like if you're going to make a difficult phone call, he rehearses a little bit. And then he calls up and it's it's a very, very difficult phone call. She's... Very... It's weird. There's this strangeness that goes back and forth between, obviously, where did he go, etc. Because she makes these weird apologies, like she's gained weight. Mm. And she's got one fake tooth at the front because she fell on a cement bench. She had a, she had a tooth knocked out, yeah. Which is a weird thing to say to somebody as soon as you speak to them on the phone for oh. the first time in 11 years. Also, it's why would you apologise for that? Because it's it's totally unnecessary. Why she, like why would she even say sorry to that? What does she what does she get out of that apology? Well, that's the point. This film is playing with these weird psychological issues the whole time because even Michael on the phone says to her, everything's just screwed up. I'm not thinking straight. He also says, he says, it's boring. Everything's boring. Well, like, he's boring. He's boring. Yeah. He's quite boring. Yeah, he's he's, fucking... But it's like, he's boring, but it's everybody else's fault somehow. Did you find in this film, he's pushing his psychology onto everything around him? I think and that's why everybody appears the same. Because do you think it's a literal or a figurative way everybody's the same? No, I, I think it's I think it's more figurative to be honest. But I see what you mean about him like pushing his psychology onto other people, almost like so like he can control them, and like because like he's made them kind of in an image he wants. Because he is sense. quite he is a little manipulative, isn't he? He is quite manipulative. Yeah, like it comes up now and then. Like he's almost schizophrenic how he bounces back and forth in his attitudes towards people. But maybe you would if everybody spoke the same. If everyone spoke and talked exactly the same, I can't even imagine what that would be like living with that on a day to day basis. Yeah, because even he watches a scene from My Man Godfrey on the TV and just listened to them play that scene, whatever the scene it was they played, and everybody speaks the same. It, there's no life when you hear it that way, is there? No, it's like it, it, it's almost like watching a film where everyone has been dubbed by the same character. But he's, yeah, I know he watches a bit of that film. As far as I know, the reason they used My Man Godfrey, they wanted to use a different film, but they couldn't get the copyright to it so they used this film because it's in the public domain is always oh, that why is it yeah that's why so they just it was just easier to use that film but yeah for whatever reason gained weight fake toothed bella decides to meet him down in the bar down, the hotel bar yeah it's a pretty swanky bar did you notice the way she dressed weird for meeting somebody at a bar like a thick jumper and it scarf. was this weird jumping scarf yeah it was strange also 
another little fantastic detail is obviously he's got this this problem where everyone looks exactly the same to him. So every time someone walks in, he stands up in anticipation because he doesn't know who Bella is. Even when Bella approaches him, he doesn't know who she is. No, because several people walk towards him. Yeah, and as you said, he keeps getting up, doesn't he? It's a great detail because anyone would have looked up and seen the person they were looking for, but because he doesn't know who that is, he keeps standing up. He has to wait for her to introduce herself. does, yeah. And she comes and says, I go, Michael? And she looks pretty hound-dogged in this thing, but he goes up and just gives her a hug straight away. Which pretty uncomfortable. Well, she is very self-conscious, isn't she? She's not a she's not a ball of confidence over there, is she? No, you can tell by the way she kind of lean she kind of leans back into herself throughout the conversation. Yeah. Awkwardly plays with her hair. Because had she been with anybody since Michael left? She said no. She says, no. She says there's not been anybody else. Well, she no. never got out of the bed for a year. Oh no, oh, no she did not. She, no, she said she had a. She said she just uh, broke up with a psycho recently. She did, yeah. There, there was an ex who was a psycho, and she said she was feeling fragile. Fragilely. Fragilely. <laughs> yeah. So she's already not in a good place at this moment, and she's met this guy, who obviously, like you say, they were going to run off together, and then he's he ran off on his own. Basically, disappeared. She was like, "Where did you go, Michael?" And yeah, she just he just disappeared. Do you not find everybody sounds creepy with that slight Tom Noonan voice? It's like he was having a conversation with the Sur- same person all dressed. Yeah, it's so surreal. Because Mike, it- Mike even says he says I have psychological problems. I've been running. He definitely has psychological problems. Yes, he definitely has. He definitely has. He does quite a bit of running, especially like later on in the film. It's kind of it's kind of weird. Because this is that weird thing we were saying about Kaufman, how all his films are told from the subjective. This isn't an objective film of the literal mind, literal scene, is it? No. This is all filtered through Michael. So we as the audience don't even know if what we're seeing is actually occurring. Michael is kind of like an unreliable narrator. We're seeing everything through his point of view, so he could be distorting that to to basically suit himself. He says to Bella, he says, do you feel like you've changed? Did a change occur? And he's getting very kind of in her face about it, and she starts to freak out a bit. Yeah, that's definitely his psychology. He places the blame on everyone else, doesn't he? This is what made me start to think that the breakup with Bella is what sent him on this spiral, basically. But you know what she also says to him? Mm. She says, I've missed you. And he replies, me too. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, but I think he's referring to himself. He misses himself. Yeah, I don't maybe. think he's saying me too as in he misses her. Yeah, it's, it's not made... It's I not, think it's double-edged, that comment. It's not made very clearly. He says at one point, like, do you want to go upstairs to my room so we can talk more privately? And that's pretty much... Yeah. That's what destroys the ghost. It's like, we're not going to fuck Michael. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a good impression, Wayne. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, and that's, that's when the whole thing breaks down and then... Uh, we have the weird Dino's toy scene. Yeah, the toy scene. That was that was strange. Because I like that. Because when he talked to the taxi driver, he said, uh, is there a toy store? He's like, yeah, there's a toy store. Yeah. There's this little gesture with his hands. So uh, what's funny is he goes in and it's clear right away what kind of store it is. Like, uh, I'm Michael sh- Michael's drunk at this point, we should say. Yeah, He's kind of tipsy. Because he goes, he says, uh, I'm looking for a, a present for my son. He's a pirate. Because uh, his wife said he was dressed as a pirate earlier on. Yeah, on the phone call. And it's clear what kind of store it is. And he's very confused. But there's this Japanese doll behind the cashier. This really weird-looking doll that he's instantly fascinated with. Somebody made a point who was not me. One of the theories of this film is it's so homogenized because of the mechanics of the modern world, and that doll is antique. It's old mechanics. It represents something different from the homogeny of of contemporary life. I can see that. I think the way I seen it is he's so fascinated by it by because the doll has a different face simply because it doesn't look like everybody else. This is the thing with this, with Kaufman's approach to everything. Everything's multifaceted. You think it's maybe one note or drumming the same line, but 
there is little things what make you think. Yeah, because we've because we both watched this film, and in a lot of ways, we have very different interpretations of the very same scene, even if the scene itself was just very simple. And something was stark in this film is what you don't realize with puppets. The shower scene, Wayne. The nakedness, yeah. Is he having some kind of problem with the, the tap or someone with the temperature? Because he really gets annoyed in that shower. Well, that also fitted into the, the modern mechanics of the world, how everything... Because the door key to get in doesn't work on the first time. That takes multiple times. The shower also doesn't work correctly. It's too hot, too cold. Do you know what I think I noticed about the card? I'm sure he was trying to put that card in upside down. I don't know if it makes a difference, but it looked like the strip was on the top. I thought he was putting it upside down. I don't think he ever flipped it, though, did he? Uh, maybe he didn't, actually. He my, just kept my, putting it in, I think. Mike's me. I was sat there like, Mike, your card's upside down. But with the shower, I, I understand, because I've been in hotel rooms where the temperature adjuster on the shower seems to make no sense. So I like that, because he's suddenly like, oh, fuck! He's just getting really pissed off with the shower. But it's the starkness, because you don't... Because when he gets out of the shower, he's bollock naked, fully, isn't he? fully naked, yeah. Which you don't expect in a no, puppet film. Well, what they said is they tried to work like work hard on like the, the nudity. Imagine being the guy who had to yeah. do all the work on the naked puppets, because he wanted it, again, to be authentic. He didn't want people to laugh. He wanted it to seem kind of real. Well, he was self-conscious because Team America had came out in a similar period, the from the creators of South Park, and they make, you know, sex and nudity a joke in it, don't they? Yeah, well, it's, there is, like, that's that sex scene in Team America, which is played entirely for laughs. Yeah, and they were very conscious of that, and they were trying to make this a more realistic approach to all these topics. Yeah, they didn't want people to laugh at it when they were watching it. No, there, there's humour in this film, but the nudity or the sex aren't played for laughs. No, they're played... They're played Hyper-real. Very, very I think that's why the funny moments are... They ex- punctuate the stillness. Extra humorous, because you're watching this serious thing, and then... And, and then suddenly, like a joke, just springs out of nowhere again, like that bumpy plane ride one. But yeah, he looks in the bathroom mirror, and that's this first break of reality, or one of the first breaks of reality, because his face starts detaching from the puppets. What would you call it? The pu- puppet the, separation between their forehead and lower yeah, face. Yes, it's like it's like his face starts malfunctioning. It's it's like he's it's like he's twitching uncontrollably. Like he's face. going through. Loads of emotions in a short span of time. Yeah, basically, it's like he's just, it's like he's not sure which one to express. And is it not that from there we actually, he hears a voice that he's never heard before? A unique voice. A unique voice. And he, he like, just struggles to throw his clothes on because he's not even really dried off in the shower, has he? And he's trying to throw his clothes on and he goes into the corridor and just starts banging on people's... everybody's door. You, you know what I found interesting? Again, you know, you were saying looking through his filter. Do you not think the people who answered the door were overly polite to him because would you not be kind of annoyed if someone did that to your hotel door well he kept saying he's looking for his friends didn't he and this person's like oh no they're not in here they're not like what the hell are you doing here because he does find the door eventually and it's two fans isn't it yeah there's a uh, they're here to hear his motivational speech one's called emily and emily looks exactly like everybody else but then he hears a voice in the back of the room and he's just instantly captivated because it's a different voice jennifer jason lee's voice it is. It's definitely not Tom Noonan. No, definitely not Tom. Definitely not Thank Tom. Thank Christ! It's not Tom Noonan's voice. Yeah, yeah. and uh, she reveals herself, and she also looks totally different. Yeah, she doesn't have the same facial features. She, no, she... actually has a distinct look and a distinct voice. Yes, and even almost like a distinct way of behaving as well. And she appears, and again, Mike's just transfixed. Well, in this film, you have a lot of these interactions are very reserved, aren't they? And even Emily's is. And Lisa's kind of, she's played more clumsily, less intellectual. 
Not in a bad way. I mean, in a less self-aware way. She's almost portrayed as like you could say, like kind of a ditz, kind of like a like a oh I'm so to a silly. point, yeah. Like oh I'm so silly, kind of way, yeah. But I think it's to highlight that she's got a personality. She's not robotic like the rest of them. You could say she's kind of quirky. Yeah, yeah. Like she, she very. I like that. She's she, not manufactured. No. I think that's what it she's means. not distinguished just by her appearance and her voice. It's also by her personality. And I think the movie does give her a very interesting personality because she has one of his books, doesn't she? Because she brings it up lisa and what's it called it's called how may i help you help, help them? them yeah with his big smile on the front cover yeah because it's is this not the book he's plugging it is uh the seminar that he's doing his seminar yeah and he invites them for a drink yeah they go down to the bar he goes down to the bar again to, to the do, bar to do drinks a lot and he was it belvedere martini with a twist well he does say he gets a lot of practicing with a he did, did yeah he does with get fellow. a lot of practicing with a drink doesn't well, he because he necks his drink like, i get a lot of practice because the two girls we mentioned, Emily and Lisa, they're we find out at the bar they're custom customer service reps. They work for is it like a is it like a food a food company or something like packaged foods? It seems like crap food, doesn't it? It seems like a pretty dull job. And they say you know they don't make a lot of money, but they love to do things like this. This is like a holiday for them, coming out and staying in these fancy hotels. And we also notice with Lisa, she's very self-conscious she covers her face with her hair because she has a scar near yeah, her eye there's a scar by the right eye yeah and actually somebody pointed out the scar there is the same place as the damage on the japanese doll it's it also, is yeah it's, all, it's also about the right eye. leads to a very interesting theory Do you actually. know what i noticed there's, when the very first moment of this scene in the bar with emily lisa with michael do you know what the lyrics to the song are the first lyric to the first song who are you who are you or what the not the Who song. No, no. No, just the lyric. It's just the lyric from the song. It says, who are you? No, I never And even, I, I think that's that. appropriate to to figuring out all these this psychological makeup of Michael because he doesn't know who he is anymore. He doesn't know who anybody is anymore. No, he doesn't. Yeah, like I say, he doesn't even know himself. He invites Lisa in the hallway to a nightcap. Kind of awkwardly because Emily's still there, but she she's like, you know, yeah, that is head. really awkward, isn't it? That would be that would be a very awkward situation in real life, like trying to do that while the other person stood. Can there. you please leave, Emily? <laughs> yeah, because it's like it's like, well, why didn't you ask her? Because Lisa does always say everyone always prefers Emily, which is a weird thing to say because she says that when Emily's right there, everybody always prefers Emily. This constant insecurity that she's got, and when she does go with him, she trips, she stumbles. And she says it always happens. Yeah. She's, this is like we said, I think it's exaggerating the clum- clumsiness to make her appear more human. Would you say? Do you th- do, do, did you find that? I think so. I think because they want to make her seem more like a realistic character. Again, less like a robot. And Mike's key doesn't work again. But I guess it's because he's pissed this time, isn't it? Yeah, so they get to his room and I find this really weird with Michael. He's several things like... He feels something special for Lisa, he says, doesn't he? Yeah, even though they've barely known each other. I think it's this quick this quick attachment and infatuation again because of the psychological thing of, of her looking and sounding different, I think. Because she says, most people don't like to look at me too much. Mm-hmm. I like to, when, you know how she's got the scar on the face. Michael says, can I kiss you there? Yeah, that was, that was quite an escalation in the conversation because it was she thinks going... he's a pervert she does yeah she's like you're not a pervert that's what i liked again about lisa because she's very clumsy and kind of ditzy and all very nice but she can also you know she can offer some pushback now and then yeah and it was lisa's last boyfriend was eight years ago wasn't it that's who i was meaning but she said it wasn't even it wasn't even like a proper boyfriend was it like he was a lot older and he, was he was a lot just... older and she says did he only fancy her because she was younger and i think something like that it was almost like 
because she's she's always putting herself down, isn't she? She's she's very self-deprecating in this. But Michael's like, oh no no, it's lovely. Oh, this is lovely and stuff like this. But yeah, she's like, she just keeps putting herself down all the time. And she he coaxes her because she likes to sing, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. She says that she's not very good at it, but she just loves to sing like to the radio and stuff like that. And she sings "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" by Cindy Lauper. Classic song. Which in the play was um, "My Heart Will Go On" by Celine Dion. Yeah, again, uh, they, they couldn't, couldn't get, afford the rights. They couldn't get the rights to that, but they could get "Girls Just Want to Have Fun." But there's a great uh, little thing in this. There's a detail that an animator actually added to this film, and it happened by accident. When she sings this song, she's obviously self-conscious, and she covers her eyes with her hair, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. But that wasn't in the script. That actually occurred because on that day on set, they were missing an eye. Also, oh, they just had to. Cover- so the animate one of the animators just said, "Oh, we'll we'll cover it with." The hair. So it was just out of necessity. That wasn't was even it? a Kaufman trick. That was just out of necessity because the eye was missing on that day. How fortuitous. Because it, it really worked. It's a visual cue for the audience of her personality. It is because, again, like say, very insecure. She she almost like can't sing the song, but you, you do see her developing confidence as she's singing. And because Mike is just captivated by, not just her face, but via her voice as well. Because in this time they're in the hotel room, he gets her to speak as much as possible. And well, as you said, she gets her confidence up because she's about he's about to interrupt her and say that's beautiful, but she cuts him off by continues to sing the song. Yeah, because like she's now singing over him. And that's when they kiss, isn't it? Mm. At the end of that song. Yeah, he comes up and kisses her, and it's very kind of. Well, did you not like it? But it was kind. It was kind of awkward because he's being very he's being very forward with her. And bear in mind, you know, we know he has a wife and a wife and a son, who you know. Presume, we presume look exactly the same. I know one of Mark Kermode's issues with this film is he found Michael Stone very creepy and kind of almost grooming. He's he's abusing his power on his fans. There are bits when they're when they're lying down on the bed together because she's like she's sat there kind of like ramrod straight, but he's just there like kind of making out with it, almost like it's just him doing all of the. He's and like he, him driven. and he wants her to just keep talking because the novelty of this new voice. Yeah, so he just he just keeps kissing her and kissing her, and she just she just keeps talking about. Just like, but just about this and that, like stories from the road and things like that. And here's a weird thing with the it ties in with the Japanese doll. She's speaking about herself, how she loves languages. But here's a weird little quirk. She says, "I love Japanese," and then she doesn't let that sit. She says, "Obviously, obviously, yeah." That's a theory I heard that yeah uh, about the doll. Like, there's a theory that came up online where I think Lisa doesn't actually exist. And it's it's somehow like tied to the doll. I've got a theory on that as well. Mm-hmm. I like these theories, Wayne. I just I, I just throw them out there. They're probably all wrong. You, you just us. just throw them out. It's fun to hear. Though. You you could say she and the doll is one and the same, or you can say the doll is a metaphor for Lisa, because the doll is a novelty. The doll is something new, and like kids with a new toy, that novelty wears off. And when that novelty wears off, he discards them. Yeah. Therefore, he treats her like the doll, something you discard of when you get bored. Yeah, that's a that's that's an interesting theory. I never heard that one. Like I say, the other one I heard is that's the, an original way. Yeah, the, <laughs> but the one that Lisa doesn't exist is actually contradicted by a scene later on. But like I say, yeah, uh, we'll get to that. But basically, they start making out, and then that leads into puppet sex. <laughs> that's one of the most realistic 
puppet sex the only realistic puppet sex scene i think yeah. i've seen well the only other one was team america and again that was played totally for laughs which but... yeah obviously we said there's we're self-conscious of not going down that route of course yeah but this one apparently took them six months to do this scene because they wanted it to be as realistic as possible they wanted it to be authentic like genuine and moving perverts yeah, pervert. <laughs> you know, as moving as it could be so uh, yeah that would have been an interesting six months just doing that over and over again because that's when he names her because she says she feels like an anomaly an anomaly she? yeah and he call and he names her a portmanchu anomalisa yeah. anomalisa roll credits yeah yeah he gives her the name anomalisa and she's like oh my god i love that she's yeah she absolutely latches onto but that he also said while they're getting jiggy wayne <laughs> he says i don't want to lose you i lose everyone i lose everyone yeah it's it's like everybody in his life i think it's it's kind of reference to the fact that everybody in his life doesn't necessarily drift away but they just become this clone well, homogenous. They they become one. Everybody becomes the same exact thing. Yeah, because he he spends enough time with someone and basically morph into, they basically just morph into this into this single person. Do you think it's it's a comment on society? Do you think this is saying Michael sees himself because he's so self-absorbed? He sees himself as special and different. So to him, everybody's the same, and he thinks he's the one who stands out. But at the end of the day, everybody has the same base needs, the base urges, and everybody wants, for the most part in life, the same thing. And Michael can't accept that because he's so self-indulgent. Yeah, or, or you could say it's to do with the fact that people don't see others as individuals, they see them as just not being them. So everyone else is just not them. So it's just all one collective, basically. Which people generally kind of are, aren't they? I guess like a commentary, like the, yeah, like the, the selfishness. The selfishness of human society as a whole. Because I can never make up my mind if this is a commentary discrediting hive mind or a commentary discarding Michael's self self obsession. Oh, it's almost like a commentary about how everyone has a commentary on something because yeah. it's a fairly simple thing, like on the surface. But there's so much you could read into it, like you say, because you've already developed a bunch of theories from this relatively short movie. So yeah, there's a lot you can read into these things. But he's woke up by a phone call, isn't he, after their night of lovemaking, Wayne? Yeah, oh bloody hell, yeah. Actually, before we get to that, he looks out the window again, and did you see what one of the billboards said? It's about the zoo, and it says it's zoo-sized, which is exactly <laughs> what one of the which one of the things the taxi driver says. It says it doesn't take ages to see the zoo. You know, it's it's not that big a zoo. It's zoo-sized, and that's on a billboard. I never noticed that first time round. No, I never actually mentioned, I noticed that either. Yeah, but no, he's, it's a phone call from someone calling themselves Lawrence Gill. Lawrence Gill. Who wants to meet him in the basement. and He's, he's the general manager of the hotel. Yeah, and he's very very perturbed by this, of course, because he just wants to relax. But he goes down to meet them, and it's this huge car park, which was by far the biggest set built for the film. Well, to get there, he goes through the office of all them people at the desk, and they all just look like one hive don't they basically it's like a bunch of bees looking at him essentially yeah yeah but he goes through to this basement which is this huge room which has a pit in the middle and he gets michael to drive this a car golf car he gets to drive drive it round the pit it's this very awkward scene but he gets him to drive around the pit to see him because like why is his desk in the car park that's unnecessary wayne <laughs> It may be a big hotel, but a car park office is quite unnecessary. Car park is a car park, yeah. And he kind of subtly tries to inquire about uh, about Lisa, because basically what the train is, we know that you've got Lisa with you in your hotel room. A, a guest staying in your room, yeah. And of course, Michael's just very annoyed by this. As he he does say this walking on a treadmill. 
Yeah, he's walking on a treadmill <laughs> and he's talking and he's talking to him while walking on this treadmill. And Michael's like, you know, it's not a crime. I haven't done anything wrong. So, oh no, we no, we haven't, Michael, uh, Mister Stone. What does Gil say to him? I love you. I love you. you. That's he's, a weird thing to say. He does. He says, "I love you." Again, is that just Michael fantasizing? About, well, him, about everybody loving him. Well, he says, "If you need to have an affair, I understand. I want, I want what's best for you." Yeah, it's it's almost like Michael has spent so much time with all these different people. He's mixing up. This could be somebody from his past. This could be anybody. But he's just got everybody so mixed up. He doesn't know who is who anymore. Well, this is a common Kaufman mode of operating, isn't it? How memories exist and coexist at the same time. Yeah, it's it's like the, the blending of like on the blending of reality and fiction as well because we don't know how much of this is real because he's in this weird basement. All this weird stuff is happening. This is where for me the movie kind of goes full weird. This is like the weird, the kind of third act Kaufman thing. You but if the say. general manager said that to you, would you not just kind of leave the uh, the hotel? <laughs> or, <laughs> I, I don't think I'd be staying around. Or would you awkwardly say I love you too and then leave? <laughs> would room service be cheaper? <laughs> Free, I hope. Um, so yeah, he goes back into the office because he 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 rushes away from Gil, doesn't he? He bombs it, I bombs. And he takes the golf cart into like a stairwell. Yeah. He drives into a stairwell. Yeah, and then he's running away, and he gets he gets back into that that hive oh. of people, all of whom are like, "Oh, I love you, I love you, I want you, you I want you." Anybody but Lisa. And anybody but Lisa. Yeah, I, I was thinking like, why do these people know who Lisa is? But I'm like, oh yeah, we're seeing this through like through his point of view, through his mind. Because when he gets to the room, he says to Lisa, doesn't he? They're all one person, but you and me, you're the only other person in the world. Mm, yeah. So he sees, ev- this is what I'm saying, he sees everybody as distinct from himself. Yeah, he almost sees people as just these just these people to be cast off, like these just totally unnecessary. Almost like he sees people as just a source of annoyance. And she finds it romantic, because she, she's so desperate, isn't she? Basically, yeah, because they're suddenly developing this idea they want to well, like, run off together, like he was going to do with Bella. But you hear shouts of Michael now, Michael, 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 and we wake up from a dream sequence. Yeah, I was. Were you a bit deflated by that? It seemed a bit too easy, didn't it? It seemed like a, it was. It was going to end up kind of an interesting run. Like, oh no, it was just a dream. I mean, good thing it wasn't at the end of the film, and that was just the conclusion. But maybe the whole film's a dream, Wayne. Maybe the whole film. It could be very well be a dream. But yeah, he's having room service with Lisa, and this is where he's kind of planning their future together. Because he says it was interesting. He said he feels like a floodgate has opened. Because he's suddenly feeling things that he never felt before. And he wants to leave his wife for Lisa. Yeah, it's just, just leave my wife and son. And Lisa's like, oh, maybe you shouldn't tell your son. Maybe he's a bit old. And then this is where an interesting thing happens. He starts to kind of turn on Lisa. Was it not when she had agreed to him leaving his wife and she can, she all of a sudden was on board with it? She said, yes, let's do it. And then he turns on her. Yeah, because like he starts complaining about just little things like she's chewing too loud. Or the fork clank and fork clank and again her teeth. But again, Lisa just apologizes every single time. And this is where my theory came in, Wayne. Okay. Every woman in this film, whether it's Lisa apologizes to him, Bella apologizes to him, everybody acts self conscious around him. He gaslights everybody. Mm-hmm. I don't think his relationship with women have been very fortuitous, have they? No, you think he's he's like projecting onto them how he wants them to be, how he wants them to act around him. He's a control freak who gaslights people. And that's the kind of thing I don't like. He's not a likable guy, Michael, is he? He's not an especially likable character. Like he is very like he's kind of creepy and like I say he's quite selfish and self-centered. He doesn't treat people very well. He's quite predatory. He, he is, tells yeah. everybody what they want to hear. And then when they, when he's done with them, 
he discard discards of them, doesn't he? Or like he just gets tired of them and gets rid of them, and that's when they. Or become... just or he just disappears, like he did with Bella. Yeah, basically, just he's just he's just used up. He's got what he wants from him, and now he's just left. Because nobody can can compare with his idealistic vision of what these people should be. Yeah, and once he realizes that, he just discards he just them. Dis- disappears. Because yeah. at this point, while they're having this discussion, Lisa's body kind of goes. Uh, sorry, her voice goes robotic. Well, no. What happens is it's underlaid with Tom Noonan's everybody else's voice. So now you've got the duality. You're hearing Lisa, but you're hearing the same thing under her voice with Tom Noonan. Like this voice is now creep. This identity is yeah, now creeping every- in. Yeah, everybody else's identities is creeping into hers, which is clearly, I think, indicating. Michael's psychological problems, isn't it? It is, yeah, because not not just the voice, because there's actually a shot where uh, her face turns to, Lisa's face turns to, like, the Tom Noonan clone face. Yeah. And Michael is just absolutely mortified, because it's like that transformation is complete. It's like he has now discarded her in his mind. And after that, we cut to his motivational speech, the very reason he is in Sin Sin City. And... His motivational speeches, it's nothing special. He says, remember the customers are an individual, just like you. How everybody has had a day, a childhood, etc, etc. But after he says all these kind of platitudes, doesn't he? He kind of almost has a breakdown because he says, I've lost my love. Do you think he was referring to Lisa there? No. I almost think more like the love for himself. Oh, I think so. Maybe because he's making this motivational speech, but he keeps interjecting, interjecting all these personal details, and it's like the audience is getting very uncomfortable. But I no, I don't think it is for Lisa because she's just become, like I say, this will just keep happening to him. So I think it's more almost like the love of himself that he's lost. I see it as Lisa Wayne, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because that quote goes on, it says, "I lost my love. She's an unmoored ship drifting off to sea, and I have no one to talk to." And because after this speech, he disappears from Lisa again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that's so, it. Well, uh, actually, I get your point. I, I think it works both ways, doesn't it? He's lost himself. He's the unmoored ship. Yeah. And in turn, because he feels that way, it also applies to others in his life. So Lisa, for example, because she's now drifted off. She's becoming like everybody else. She's become another member of the hive. And he goes on to these weird diatribes about the U.S. president and war, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, he's just he like completely lost his mind. He's just gone off script so much because he he's not like put, actually put the speech down. He just stops referring to it and starts marching in like a military. Yeah, he's just doing this this crazy thing on stage. I'm like, is someone going to get a hook? Is someone going to get him off stage? Is it trying to link the uniformity of the military and then the uniformity of how he sees other people in life? I think that's what it's getting at. Uh, that could be again because everyone is yeah. like, everyone else is like kind of like a faceless army. And uh, yeah, how the army's lit, it's, it kind of acts as one homogenous group, doesn't it's, it's it? It's supposed to fight as a unit. Yeah, as a yeah. unit, that's the way, yeah. And after that speech, his. I don't know, would, would you pay to hear that speech i know they're not paying to hear it but a book has come off his motivational speeches yeah i'll expect i'd expect it to go viral anyway what i like is how the scene kind of ends with him doing this kind of weird joker smile like he forces this really big smile and that's like the most you ever see like of of his smile and then we cut to him being at his home don't we you notice it cuts off mid-sentence it's almost like it's almost like an editing mistake but it's like it's almost like you know, if someone was on TV giving some kind of address and he was cut off then, it's almost like that. Yeah, like if somebody's saying something wrong. Oh, yeah, like, hit, cut away, yeah, cut away. Hit the emergency, emergency stop button. Yeah. yeah, and it cuts to him being back home. <laughs> and his wife. Yeah. And the kid. It is damn kid, man. His kid just runs up. 
for the toy straight yeah. away. Dressed as a fireman now. He was a pirate. He's now dressed as a fireman. He's always something else. He's always dressed as something else. Uh, yeah, because they run up to him and, again, he's just so unhappy to be there and his wife tries to be nice and the kids are oh did you get me a gift dad because that's all the kid wants from him the kid just wants gifts hey kid you got the Japanese erotic doll be happy yeah, but he takes yeah because he gives her this doll and it turns out she's thrown a surprise party which first of all shocks Michael then irritates him everything irritates Michael yeah it's like he's and again people are going by and it's like all oh, these people and he just says who are all these people because again it's a room full of people who are dressed differently but just look the same to him and he's like oh hey good to see Michael so, oh hey uh, yeah you again he's just got no idea who anyone is what does the wife say about the doll she's not yeah she's like she just thinks it looks really weird because like he's like daddy what is it this is this writing it's, like, oh, it's in Japanese kid like he's he's trying to have these two conversations at once and uh, it's like so just press buttons and does he not press a button and it starts it sings. Is that Jennifer Jason Lee's voice? It is. Singing? It's, 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 is, it's her it? voice singing in Japanese. I thought yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, and what's called? She says, uh, says, there's something coming out of the doll. Again, this got a huge laugh because I think, again, because we've been so serious for a while, this random stuff happens. Like, there's something coming out of it. I think it's semen. Michael, it looks like semen. I remember the first time I watched this film, I just because burst out Because that's one of laughing. the theories of why people think Lisa never existed and. And it was the doll all along. Basically, the sex doll. Yeah, because I remember reading somewhere like, "Oh, Michael, bastard!" It's like, "Oh, after Michael has sex with the doll, I'm like, sorry, did he?" I had to flick back through the movie. I'm like, I didn't see that happening. Like, because this semen comes out of the doll, so it's like the doll is Lisa, basically. Do you what, what do you think about that theory? Oh, actually, that theory kind of falls apart, especially in the next bit where we see yeah. Lisa, Lisa in the car because we see because there's a tag on at the end. That's yeah, not the end because like she, uh, Lisa's composing this letter. It's like, is it a letter to Michael? Letter to Michael, and, and she says, "While I don't understand, I don't think I ever." felt love like this before meaning she can't understand why he's left yeah basically and uh because emily's with him in the car and we see emily another unique face yeah emily for the first time well this is the thing because we're out of michael's subjective yeah we're seeing life maybe actually how it is and emily's now got her own distinct face because this is the only scene in the movie michael is not in so now for the first time we are seeing yeah this from we're seeing objective reality rather than seeing reality filtered through michael because you notice how much more colorful and beautiful and bright everything is yeah because now it's you know it's lisa it's kind of her it's it's a happiness it's like an optimism and in the letter, she mentions that she looked up at... Is it Anomalisa she looked up or Anomalisa? Anomalisa. It was Anomalisa. It sounded... Different. And in Japanese, it means goddess of heaven. Mm-hmm. Turns out, actually, it doesn't. Apparently, there is no such word in Japanese, which means there's another one that has a kind it's of similar, similar spelling. Yeah. But yeah, Anomalisa is not an, actual, uh, not an actual word. And then Lisa, it kind of ends on a sort of happy message. Lisa says she hopes that we'll see each other again. I don't think that's going to happen. I'm pretty sure it isn't going to happen. He's going to find somebody else and then they're going to just morph again. So, what's your interpretation? That's the end of the film. Have you got a solid interpretation? Did you come up with one? Are you unsure? How do you see it? I could say I see it as existential film, discussing identity, because that's what Charlie often does. It's about, uh, what's the word, uh, ennui? which is like a feeling of dissatisfaction because of lack of excitement. Michael is very detached from other human beings. So I think that's... That's my takeaway for it. It's a man very unsatisfied with life. He's very detached from those around him, so much so that everybody else is just all the same person to him. Do you find it interesting to know that Kaufman suggests or says outright, actually, that Michael doesn't have Fregoli delusion? Do you I, find that a weird No, I, I find that strange. That's almost like he's trying to encourage more conversation because... Do you think he's being disingenuous there? Possibly, yeah, because it looks like he does have textbook Fregoli delusion, doesn't it? 
my take on it is is he's a very displeased man. I think he's always saw himself greater than he is. He has a very he's a t- narcissistic personality. By the way he? he talks, he's very aloof. He looks as he looks upon other people like his inferiors. Well, that's what I'm saying. Because he's so self-indulgent, self-obsessed with himself, he sees everybody else's a, like a, almost like a hive mentality and he's the one he sees himself as being the only person who is an individual yeah no one no one else is good enough to be their own person everybody else is just another person basically yeah and we're seeing everything through his subjectivity yeah until the very last scene where of course he's not in so this is really just a single character study, isn't it? Very much so, yes. Just with everybody else around to facilitate that. And like we said, this is going through all of Kaufman's themes. The existential crisis, identity, time, memories. The curmudgeon in the lead role. <laughs> Which is why you you actually, you actually quite like Michael Stone as a character. Well, as I, a person, I mean. I, I just have a soft spot for that, that, kind of, that kind of old curmudgeon character who's just a kind of fed up with people, the kind of get-off-my-lawn kind of attitude. Did you not think he transgressed being curmudgeon and was it kind of creepy, though? There was a lot of... When you watch it back the second time, you do see those kind of those elements of him, the more disturbing ones, the, the less pleasant ones, yeah. Yeah, because I noticed there was a lot of disturbing characteristics and you maybe don't notice them first time, do you? Not necessarily first time, around. I guess because for me it was really the humour that was hitting me a lot more the first time because I think it is a very funny film. Well, it is a comedy drama. It's Yeah, largely because of how serious a lot of the film is and then it's just punctuated with these laugh-out-loud moments. Do you think this appeals to people? Because it didn't do well at the box office, did it? I don't think it has a mainstream appeal. It was it was the first R-rated film to be nominated for an Oscar, but the chances of them giving it to, to a film like this were very low. And I don't think... This does not have mainstream appeal, I don't think. This does not have mass appeal. Yeah, like I said, it didn't do well at the box office. It's the kind of... Almost like... It's not like a film-goer's film. It's a film-lover's film. A film-lover's film, I'd say so. Because like I say, 20 minutes in, I knew this was going to be great i knew this was going to be a film you, I you would say it was great yeah i think i think it's a great would you film. say a masterpiece i don't think i'd say a master I'm it's not a sure bit one hit it's a bit one note isn't it and it has that third act problem like kaufman has where things kind of fall apart but i think it's great that's the second time i've seen it and i really really enjoyed it i think it do you think it's aesthetically better than it is story-wise well because do you think it's more of a success because the aesthetics of the film are so so tremendous. Yes, um, it's a very much like mechanically, it's a brilliant film. Yeah, and I th- I see what you're saying. The plot is the plot is not so complicated, but allows a lot of like I say psychological interpretation. I think that's where the film is at its greatest when it just leaves you to ponder all of these things. Somebody referred to it as the most human film of the year. Yet made by made with puppets. Made with puppets. Yes, it's. I think it's an astonishing film. I really like going back to what uh, I loved going back and revisiting it and seeing. Like I say, little jokes here and there that I never noticed the first time. Again, it's great hearing like the theories you had because when you look back at it, you always see the movie, I think, differently because you've heard these theories. Well, that's the thing. When you watch a film with somebody else or you hear somebody else's interpretation, it makes you see things in a different way. And if I don't know if the things I say are right, but it's a lot of these films are working on it's how the viewer themselves see it, isn't it? But with interpretation, you can't necessarily be right or wrong. Like if you if you found something in the film and you have the evidence to kind of back that up, there's no really saying you're wrong. Well, no. Well, bloody Kaufman names the film, the names the hotel, the, the Frijoli, yes. Frijoli, well, that's, and that's so on the nose. 
and but yet michael doesn't suffer from it yes he totally does <laughs> yes yeah, but... well he suffers from something yeah more important question would you recommend this film to people and if yes who would you recommend it to it's it, it's a really good film you you would recommend it to somebody but you don't know if that person's going to like it you couldn't just uh, recommend this to somebody who says, "Oh, yeah, give me a film just so I could enjoy." Just, just I'm just going to sit down casually on a Sunday morning and yeah. watch a film. No, not that kind of thing. It's it is a film you have to you have to look into and you have to kind of think about. So it's I think not if you appreciate if you appreciate film, you appreciate this to a point. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I totally agree. So for me, this movie, yeah, is a definite recommend. Completely recommend. Go see it. You've been listening to episode six of In Film We Trust once again. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. Join us next week where we'll discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream.